You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Congregation, I invite you now to turn with me in the Word of God to Romans chapter 3. This is essentially the last section in the first part of Romans. In the letter to the Romans, there are three sections, just like our catechism. The first dealing with our sin and misery. So this is the last text and the last sermon in the first part, dealing with sin and misery. So we'll read the first 20 verses, and our text will end up being verses 9 to 20. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as world history is marching toward its end in Jesus Christ at a second coming, Each generation of people learn from the previous generation of people. This makes sense. After all, it's our parents who are our first teachers. However, in television, in movies, in the media, there's this mentality that there's this great gulf between the young people, your children, and your grandparents, the oldest generation among us. The oldest generation among us, it's told to us, is old-fashioned. 
They don't know what's going on. They don't have iPhones and they don't have iPads and they're not on Facebook and they don't do this and that. In part, this is true. Well, maybe some have iPads and iPhones, but overall, there's a technological gap between the younger and the oldest generation. And the negative part of this view between the old and the young is that the older generation will not be able to understand what the younger generation is going through. So that you who are in school, you sit down with your grandparents and they say, what's going on in your life? Will they in any way be able to relate to what is going on in your life? They don't know what the younger generation is going through. Well, the wise preacher of Ecclesiastes makes it clear that there is nothing new under the sun. And this is why each generation can relate to each other. Each generation struggles with the same exact things. And those things are sin. Sin's the same now as it was 60 years ago. Hasn't changed a bit. It's the same now as it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, the occasion of sin may look different. Sins of the day may take on a different form. But the sin is the same because it comes from the same exact source. And that's the human heart. That's the source of, of sin. That's the spring which flows forth sinfulness. Sin is not in itself an entity out there. Sin is done. Sin is thought. Sin is a lack of doing what God requires. Sin is real. And at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. At the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The human heart is darkened by sin. Humans are totally depraved by nature. And our text this afternoon makes that abundantly clear. In a sense, as we read Romans 3, 1 to 20, you may have thought to yourself, well, that, that doesn't sound very uplifting. That doesn't sound very encouraging. No one's righteous, not even one. You're all sinners. You're all born with depravity as a result of sin. The true child of God as he reads Romans 3, wants to peek ahead to verse 21. We stopped reading at verse 20. The child of God wants to read ahead to 21. But now. That's true. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. We want to get to that. Verse 21. Because we need the gospel. This is the last sermon in the first section of the book of Romans, which emphasizes the sinfulness of both Jews and Gentiles, all people. So our theme this afternoon is our sovereign God lays the summarizing indictment against humanity. Our sovereign God lays a summarizing indictment against humanity. Think of a court of law. The evidence is laid out. First, we'll see the nature of sin. Second, the role of the law. So first, the nature of sin. Now, but to this point in Romans, 
you obviously haven't been listening to the sermon series through Romans, but if you flip a couple pages back and you start to gaze through what the apostles are arguing here, he's building an argument. What you begin to see pretty clearly and quickly is that all are under sin. All people are not only born in a relationship under sin, having been born with original sin, with a sinful nature, but that their depravity then, the way that they are born, their DNA affects their whole entire being. The apostle shown that this sinful nature exposes itself in actual sin. And the apostle even argued back in Romans 1 that God even gives people who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, he gives them their sin. He gives them over to their sin. Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He goes on to explain the depravity of this sin. Homosexuality, verse 24, 25, they've exchanged natural for what was unnatural. God gives them over to this. It's not just one specific sin. It's sin in general to the wicked. And it reigns supreme. God gives them over to a debased mind. And sin continues and grows and it springs forth from the fountain of a sinful heart. It's also clear from Romans that all people, both Jews and Gentiles alike, are without excuse. For the law of God has been revealed to them. It's revealed in nature. It's revealed in the scriptures. It's revealed in our being, in ourselves. So from all these forms of revelation of God, it essentially just leaves humans with no defense. Man can now never say, well, I never knew that there was a God. He reveals himself in them, in society, in creation, etc. And so this leads the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to conclude in verse 9 of our text that there's no real advantage to being a Jew than a Greek. But the Jews have the covenant. The Jews have the word. Doesn't matter whatsoever. Put that in church terms. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized. Doesn't matter if you made profession of faith. Doesn't matter if you go to catechism. If you're the best student in catechism. Doesn't matter whatsoever. If, if you do not understand the righteousness of God as a mature believer in Jesus Christ. Those things are important. And they were important in the life of a Jew. To follow God. To live outwardly. In a way that's pleasing to God, so to speak. But without understanding the righteousness of God. Who cares? That's the crux of the whole argument of the book of Romans. It's answering the question, how are we righteous before God? All of the supposed comforts and assurances that works alone or religion externally expressed, all of those things are stripped away. They're gone. All of the arguments that the Jews have made concerning their ethnic favor with God. Hey, after all, we are Jews. We are sons and daughters of the covenant. 
Abraham's blood runs through our veins. No, it doesn't. Not if you do not understand the righteousness of God. In that sense, we are more so children of Abraham than an unbelieving Jew. It's all gone. It's all taken away. And there they stand. And with them, humanity. Before God. Naked. No defense. As sinners. They don't have to be told that anymore. But what we find in our text is an explanation of the nature of that sin. And how it completely affects humanity. Verses 10 to 18 of our text, there's a long list of Old Testament quotations dealing with this subject. These quotations all come from different passages in the Old Testament. And together they develop the argument concerning man's sin and misery. If you weren't sure about total depravity, read verses 10 to 18. It's pretty clear. But there are three features of this dark biblical picture of sin that stand out. The first one is the ungodliness of sin. Verse 9 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 10, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This gets at the ungodly nature of sin. Sin is a denial of God. To use the language of Romans 1, it is the suppression of the truth of God. It's taking God from the throne, which is his as the creator of heaven and earth. That he as the creator should forever sit upon this throne, ruling over his creation. It's to take God off of that throne and to put man onto that throne. That's what sin is. It is godlessness. It is ungodly. To live in sin is to live as if God does not exist. And so the wicked boldly indulge themselves in sin. Sin to the wicked is like a Thanksgiving feast. Celebrated Thanksgiving a few weeks ago. Nice bread, turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing. Eat until you're full. For the wicked, that's what sin is like. It's like a great feast of sin. And they eat until they're full, and they keep eating and eating. They are gluttons. They gorge themselves. They take something which God has created for good, and they use it for evil. Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of punishment. There's no fear of judgment. They live as if they are gods. Humans do not naturally seek after God. When our text says this, this does not mean that they never seek after truth. This means that there's no room for God. There's no room for God in their thoughts. There's no room for God in their lives. There's no love of God. There's no honor of God. God simply does not fit. People are busy today. All kinds of things going on. They're far too busy for God. Or any of this God talk or God business. But see, it's even more than that. Because sin grows like a cancer. Sin is ungodly. To coin a phrase, it's self-godly. John Stott says, 
Ultimately, sin is self-deification. Boys and girls just means making yourself God. Sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. This isn't new. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve did not believe God and fell into sin. They put God's word or the devil's word. They put God's word to their own judgment. They stood above the word of God and they said, no, I do not believe it. This is not true. By doing so, they sought to be like God. They wanted the throne of God. God gave them a job. They wanted the whole company. This is the ungodliness of sin. Secondly, we see the pervasiveness of sin. It influences everything. The pervasiveness of sin. In verses 13 to 17, notice the language that's used in these Old Testament passages. These are taken from Psalm 5 and Psalm 10 and Psalm 140, Isaiah 59. Look at verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery. Mark their ways. Purposely, the parts of the body are included. Their throat is an open grave. It's full of wickedness, corruption. It's like the rotten Dead body of someone lying in a tomb, in a grave, and it's rotting. That's what their mouths are like. That's what their throats are like. Their tongues, they practice, practice deceit. Instead of being dedicated to the truth of God, they have exercised falsehood. The poison of vipers is on their lips. A viper is a poisonous snake. It bites you and you die. The lips are like a poisonous snake. They're biting. They're harmful. The lips are filled with curses and wickedness. They can kill, just like the bite of a viper. And their mouth, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They sin against God by what they say. The mouth which ought to be used for the worship of the Creator is done or is used for the exact opposite. The way they accomplish their goals is through violence. Instead of civility or diplomacy or hard work, they do not know peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They're looking in the wrong direction. They're out for number one, themselves. And they have no reverence for their Creator. Are you starting to see the picture that's developed here? The bodily organs are used in service to sin. Most of these parts of the body, in verses 13 to 15, are parts which involve speech. John Murray says the concentration upon organs of speech in verses 13 to 14 shows how in the apostles' esteem the depravity of man is exemplified in his words and how diverse are the ways in which his speech betrays the wickedness of the heart. Don't believe it? Go visit a construction site tomorrow. See what you hear. Go to a restaurant and sit next to a table of unbelievers and see what they talk about. See how they speak about others. 
attend a, a ladies' tea hour and listen to the gossip fly. If what people say is a picture of what's taking place on the inside, it should seem obvious to us that humans are totally depraved. The effects of sin affect all that is done, all that's thought, all that's desired. You see, if we speak about sin in general, natural man will not be offended. As long as you leave him that most important thing to him in his morality is freedom. His freedom. I could go on a street corner in East Vancouver or Las Vegas. Wicked city, Sin City, it's nicknamed. I could go preach on a street corner in Las Vegas. I could preach about sin. I mean, preach this exact sermon, except for this part. This would offend them. And you can talk about sin and you talk about the depravity of man. They say, yeah, man, people are bad. Society, society, it's not getting any better. They might think, yeah, this is a bad place. I could give you all kinds of examples, monumental examples of world history of sin running its course. Whether it's the Holocaust or some dictator starving and killing his people. Or the gladiator games 2,000 years ago and the depravity of mankind. The wickedness of a suicide bomber today. Examples could go on and on. This is all well and good. People will agree with this. Believers and unbelievers alike will agree with this. However, it's that little phrase found in verse 9. That phrase that all alike are all under sin. That's where the rub will occur. This phrase here, being under sin, takes away the freedom of the will. Hoxoma uses this exact example of having a conversation with a wicked man. And he says, as long as you leave him the power to dress himself, morally speaking, as long as you leave him the power to dress himself, as long as you leave him his freedom, it's not so bad. But say this to him, you are under sin, you are a slave to it, sin is your master, and sin holds you in its power. A natural man will cast this testimony far from him. You see, sin talk is all well and good until you let someone know that they are a slave to it. Like a drug addict, they crave it and they cannot escape it. Sin is pervasive. It's powerful. It holds people. The devil seemingly holds people by the collar of the shirt. And like walking a dog, he walks humanity straight down to hell. All around us, sin is powerful. And we can't break that bond we have with sin. We cannot break those chains. But Jesus Christ can. And Jesus Christ has. Sin is powerful unless it's given over to the Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ that the power of sin has been broken. We just sang of this. Verse 4. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. Without that, Jesus Christ setting the prisoner free, there is no possibility of freedom whatsoever. 
doesn't matter how hard somebody tries to get free. They're a slave to sin for eternity unless Jesus Christ breaks the power of reigning sin. His blood can make the fowls clean. His blood avails for me. Christ has broken the power of sin. The cross gives us the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection through faith affords us a complete victory. A complete victory over death, over the devil, and sin. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but that's okay because Romans 3 is a depressing picture of depravity. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Romans 6 at verse 6. You could read all of Romans 6, but we'll just read verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Exist no more, that means. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Have you died? What does that mean? Through faith, we died in Jesus Christ. Broken the power of that sin, the chains had been broken by Jesus Christ. What a glorious gospel picture that is of our wonderful Savior. Nevertheless, sin is still pervasive in our lives. I'm not talking about out there anymore. I'm not talking about Las Vegas. I'm talking about here. Us, the people of God. Sin is still pervasive in our lives. The difference is we are no longer slaves to it if we're united to Christ. Now, in Christ, we may fight sin. This is true only for the believer. The unbeliever doesn't fight against sin. The unbeliever fights with sin. They're on the same team. They're on the same side. We fight against sin in this battle, this antithesis, this fight, which will take place our whole entire lives. Because of our sinful nature. This battle which wages our whole life. It burdens us. And it tires us out. As any war or any battle does. It doesn't get easier. The older you get, you may be more sanctified. But sometimes sanctification just means you have clearer eyes to see your sin. Which you didn't see before. This fight for the child of God makes the child of God more and more long for glory. Do you see, brothers and sisters, what confessed and forgiven sin does? It focuses our eyes, not upon ourselves. That's not the greatest picture. It focuses it upon Jesus Christ and our eternal life with him. Well, the third thing we notice about sin in these verses, and it should be obvious to us already, but it is the universality of sin, which means all are included in our text. There's a negative and a positive statement of this. Negatively, we see in verse 20, there is no one who will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Positively, all have turned, in verse 12, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. They've all become unprofitable. 
could also be translated, they have all become debased. Over and again in these verses, the universality affecting everyone of sin is laid out. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, to be righteous is to live in conformity to God's law. And the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like. There has never been a man who could stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line and he is not true to it. All, all are under sin. Which brings us secondly to the role of the law. Verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. What does this mean? We first ought to ask the question, what does law mean here? Well, we know there's three uses of the law, but there are different ways to understand the law. Law narrowly conceived, we read it this morning, Ten Commandments. Or we could speak of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. That's the law. But this is speaking even broader of the law. It's referring to the whole entire Old Testament. You notice all those quotations, verse 10 to 18, they're not from Exodus or Deuteronomy. They're from Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And so it's speaking broadly. The testimony of all the scriptures is that man clearly is a sinner in desperate need of a savior in order to escape the coming judgment. There's no defense. Every mouth is therefore stopped. Our text says every mouth may be silenced. Literally, it means every mouth may be shut up. Nothing to say. Speechless. Here we can picture a courtroom and each one is on trial. And all the evidence, all the evidence is laid out before us. We could think of this evidence as being the first three chapters of Romans. Let me summarize it for, uh, for you. You're a sinner, unable to save yourself. That's the evidence laid out before us. Taken into closer context, just think of verses 10 to 18 as the evidence laid out before us. And it's all laid out, and now we have an opportunity to offer our defense. The defense of humanity. What is the defense? There is none. Every mouth is silenced. There is no defense. We've been caught red-handed. We've been caught with our hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. There's no defense. Yeah, but. Well, there's no yeah, buts. Anyone who would seek to find their righteousness before God by keeping the law or doing things is doing the impossible. Verse 20 says... No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, there's some modern debate about this phrase, deeds of the law or works of the law. 
but without getting into that discussion, the apostle is clear here. The works which can pass God's scrutiny are works not done by sinful human hands. We can't do it. And everyone is left without excuse and without defense. The law exposes our sin for what it is, ungodliness. And by a knowledge of that sin, we may, as Martin Luther said, quote, be humbled, terrified, bruised and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed seed, which is Christ. So with that, we come to the end of the first part of Romans. How should we understand what we have heard? Or even just verses 10 to 18. How should we understand that as living Christians living in the 21st century? You know, there is social pressure to be politically correct. And church is not to talk about sin, but about self-esteem. Instead of dealing with sin... We can blame our genes or education or our parents, our nurturing, our society. However, as human beings, no matter what takes place in our lives, even if it is horrible, and horrible, do th- horrible things do take place in our lives and in many people's childhoods, no matter what's taken place in our lives, no matter how much we are affected by negative influences, We are not helpless victims, but rather responsible for our conduct. So the first thing we must do is to accept the indictment of God against us. God has diagnosed the human condition. We are sinners. And the judgment of God and the anger of God comes down hard on sin. And we're sinners. Each one of us. Head for head. Nobody can think, oh, not talking about me, talking about the guy sitting right behind me. No, you, all of us, are sinners and the judgment of God comes down against sin. And it's godless. And it's a dethroning of God. And he hates it with a righteous hatred. And the only refuge for the broken sinner is the loving embrace of a Savior who has taken that, that judgment, that wrath of God, the propitiation of our sins. That's what that means. He's taken the wrath of God. And the God who was angry with us, and we were enemies with this God naturally, he's become our Father through a loving and gracious Savior. Not because we deserved it. Not because we're deserving of it. Not because of our last name. But by His grace, the righteousness of God will be made known. We have no merit to plead. We have no excuses to make. But rather to stand before the great judge, speechless and condemned. And when we're there, and when we recognize that, what we deserve, who we are naturally, then and only then are we ready to hear the but now of verse 21. But now.
a righteousness from God, apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Only then are we prepared for the gospel of Jesus Christ and his righteousness for our very salvation. Jesus Christ is the only hope for fallen sinners. And so, brothers and sisters, let us thank God for this Savior. Let us believe in this Savior. And let us ask God for his Holy Spirit. So this gospel, this good news may so permeate in us. May so be the definition of who we are. That we can't keep our mouths shut. Not in defense of our sin, but in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our co-workers. They stand under the judgment of God. Their mouth is silenced by their sin. So let us open our mouths in testimony and tell them that Jesus Christ is the priceless treasure and his wealth is beyond compare. Let us live out of the glorious doctrines of grace and let us daily seek our refuge in our Redeemer. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.